Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a debate between Gary North and Ron Sider on the question, what is the government's role in helping the poor? If you enjoy this episode, be sure to check out the full Gary North collection, now available on Canon Plus. Brothers and sisters, I believe deeply in the church, and I believe deeply that the Lord leads us to understand his word more faithfully in the church. And so I welcome this opportunity to try to think carefully about what the scriptures say on this important topic. And I hope that uh, I learn from you and from my brother in the course of this evening. I want to develop a three-point, I hope, biblical argument that the civil government should work to reduce poverty, look at three objections, and then conclude with three reasons for a structural approach. With a triple Trinitarian approach like that, how could I lose? (laughs) But first, a story. Since we're talking about the poor, a story about uh, food is perhaps uh, forgivable. A close friend of mine says that this happened to his parents just uh, a few months ago, actually a year ago. Apparently they love mushrooms, and they had been out in the countryside uh, this afternoon, and uh, they saw a huge number of mushrooms, so they picked a bushel full, they went home, they invited uh, eight couples to come with them for an evening meal. They had a fantastic feast, a whole lot of uh, different courses. In the course of the meal, they fed a few of the scraps to the cat. When they were all finished, they were in the living room, sitting there enjoying themselves, and suddenly someone went out to the kitchen to uh, take a look in the kitchen, and there in the middle of the kitchen floor was the cat, writhing in agony and pain. You know what they thought? They rushed to the phone, they called the doctor, he said, don't wait a minute, go to the hospital, I'll meet you there. He lined them all up, all 16 of them, he pumped their stomachs at $200 apiece. A few hours later, they were back home again, much more subdued. And somebody said, we forgot the cat. And they went out to the kitchen, and there in the middle of the kitchen floor was the cat with six new kittens. (laughs) He swears that that really happened. I believe that the government should work to reduce poverty. And I want to develop a three-step argument. One, one of the most common themes in the Bible is that God and his faithful people have a very special concern for the poor and are actively at work to reduce poverty. Two, according to the prophets, God is concerned not just with individual poor persons, but with social systems that foster poverty. And three, in the one concrete case where God revealed norms and structures for an entire society, God's revelation ordained governmental mechanisms for reducing or avoiding poverty. The first point, that God and his people have a very special concern for the poor and are at work to eliminate poverty or to reduce it. I want to develop five, or rather three, sub-points under this first thesis. For those of you who were there this morning uh, will have to forgive me. It was rather difficult to uh, do two major presentations in one day at the same place, 
that uh, overlapped in a significant way. So um, uh, please forgive me for uh, what uh, repetition there is. Think first about the central points of Revelation history. The Exodus, the destruction of Israel and Judah, and the Incarnation. At those crucial moments when God stepped into history to reveal his purpose and will, he also was acting to liberate poor and oppressed folk. Take the exact Exodus. God displayed his power at the Exodus in order to free oppressed slaves. When he called Moses at the burning bush, God said his intention was to end suffering and injustice. Exodus 3.7 says, I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. The God of the, Pi- of the Bible cares when people enslave others, when people are in poverty. Or take the destruction of the nations of Israel and Judah. The explosive message of the prophets is that God destroyed Israel and Judah, not just because of idolatry, but also because of their economic exploitation of the poor. And one could cite dozens and dozens of verses. Or the Incarnation. When God became flesh, we have Jesus, the God-man, defining his mission in the words of Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The mission of God in the flesh was to free the oppressed, to heal the blind, to feed the hungry. It was also to preach the gospel, although I'm not focusing on that tonight. Jesus' actual ministry, of course, corresponded with his words. He healed the sick and the blind, he fed the hungry, and he warned his followers in the strongest possible terms that those who don't feed the hungry or clothe the naked will experience eternal damnation. At the supreme moment of history then, when God himself took on human flesh, we see the God of Israel still at work acting to liberate the poor. The second piece of this first argument is that the Bible says that God acts in history to exalt the poor and to cast down the unjust rich in the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. Or James 5, 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now why does the scripture say that kind of thing over and over again? Is God a Marxist? I think not. The texts never say that God loves the poor more than the rich. But they constantly say that God lifts up the poor and the disadvantaged. And they constantly say that God cast down the wealthy and the powerful. Why? Well, according to the scriptures, because the wealthy have become rich very often by oppressing the poor, or because they've failed to aid the needy. James tells us why he issues that warning. You have laid up treasure for the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. God does not have class enemies. God cares equally about everyone. But he hates and he punishes injustice and neglect of the poor. And the rich, according to the scriptures, are often guilty of both of those things. Genuine guilt is a real thing in the scriptures. Long before the days of James, Jeremiah knew that the rich were often rich 
because of oppression. Listen to Jeremiah 5. Wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like fowlers, like bird catchers, lying in wait. They set a trap, they catch men. Like a basket full of birds, their houses are full of treachery. Therefore, they have become great and rich because of that oppression of the poor. They have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of wickedness. They judge out with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper, and they do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Through the prophets, God denounced devastating destruction for both rich individuals and rich nations who oppress the poor. Isaiah 3 says the same thing. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It's you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the faces of the poor, says the Lord of hosts. Now sometimes the scriptures don't say that the rich got rich by oppression. It simply says that they failed to share when they were rich. And God was very displeased in that situation too. That's the explanation for the destruction of Sodom in Ezekiel 16. Behold, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, surfeit of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. The third part of this first teaching that God has a very special concern for the poor is that the people of God, if they are really the people of God, are also very concerned with the poor. It seems to me that the scriptures actually tell us that the people of God are really not God's people at all. No matter how frequent their religious ritual, how charismatic their experience, no, how ortho, no matter how orthodox their creeds, if they do not imitate God's special concern for the poor. Again and again through the prophets, God thundered that worship in the context and neglect of the poor or mistreatment of the poor was an outrage against the Creator. One thinks of Isaiah 58. The people say to God, Why have we fasted and now take us no notice of it? You know, they've had prayer meetings and devout Bible studies and God hasn't seen it and they're offended. And God tells them, Behold, in the day of your fast you oppress all your workers. Or Amos 5, I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an overflowing stream. Earlier in the same chapter, the prophet had condemned the rich and the powerful for oppressing the poor. God wants justice for the poor, not mere religious ritual from people like that. And God hasn't changed. Jesus said the same thing. He was even more blunt and sharp. To those who don't feed the hungry and clothe the naked, he speaks the terrifying word at the final judgment, depart from me. God intends his people to imitate his own concern for the poor. My first point then is that at the heart of biblical teaching is the affirmation that it is central to the very nature of God to have a deep, strong concern for the poor. And therefore God's people must act that way. My second basic point is that according to the prophets, God is concerned not just with individual poor persons, but also with social systems that create poverty. We see this most clearly in the frequent prophetic condemnation of social sin. The prophets don't just denounce personal sins like lying or adultery. They also denounce everybody responsible for societal injustice. Listen to Amos 2. 
for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Why? Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes. They that trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. Now thus far that text is talking about oppression of the poor. But it goes right on and says, And because a man and his father go into the same maiden so that my holy name is profaned. Biblical scholars have shown that some kind of legal fiction underlies this phrase, selling the needy for a pair of shoes. This mistreatment of the poor was legal. In one breath, notice too, God condemns both sexual misconduct and legalized oppression of the poor. Sexual sins and economic injustice are equally displeasing to the God of the Scriptures. I think that one of the tragedies of the last couple decades is that some young activists supposed that as long as they were fighting for the rights of minorities or perhaps opposing militarism, they were morally righteous, regardless of how often they shacked up for the night with a guy or girl in the movement. And their parents, on the other hand, supposed that as long as they didn't steal, lie, and fornicate, then they were upright, even though they lived in segregated communities or owned stock in companies that oppressed the poor of the earth. Scripture says that both of those things are equally displeasing. Robbing one's workers of a fair wage is just as sinful as robbing a bank. Voting for a racist because he's a racist is just as sinful as seducing your neighbor's wife. God also shows that laws themselves are sometimes an abomination to him. Psalm 94 says, Can wicked rulers be allied with thee, wicked rulers who frame mischief by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous, condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold, my God the rock of my refuge. The Jerusalem Bible puts it this way. You never consent, that is, you should never consent to that corrupt tribunal that imposes disorder as law. God wants his people to know that wicked governments sometimes frame mischief by statute. Or as the New English Bible puts it, they contrive evil under cover of law. God says the same thing to the prophet Isaiah. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, the legislators, and the writers who keep writing oppression, the bureaucrats who carry it out. Why? To turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right. It's quite possible to work oppression legally, but legalized oppression is an abomination to God, and he commands his people to oppose it. Secondly, then, I want to say that according to the prophets, God is opposed to societal structures that create poverty. Third, after a drink, <coughs> my third point is that in the one concrete case, the history of Israel, where God revealed norms and structures for an entire society, God's revelation repeatedly ordained governmental mechanisms for reducing poverty. I want to talk about two examples, the Jubilee in Leviticus 25 and the sabbatical forgiveness of debts in Deuteronomy 15. First of all, the Jubilee. Leviticus 25, I think, is one of the most radical texts in the scriptures. At least it seems that way for people born in countries committed to laissez-faire economics. Every 50 years, God said, all land was supposed to return to the original owners without compensation. Physical handicaps, 
death of a breadwinner, or lack of natural ability may lead some people to become poorer than others. But God does not want such disadvantages to lead to greater and greater divergence of wealth and and poverty. God therefore gave his people a law which would go a long way toward equalizing land ownership every 50 years. Now in an agricultural society, land is capital. Land was the basic means of producing wealth in Israel. At the beginning, of course, the land had been divided more or less equally among the tribes and the families. Apparently, God wanted that basic arrangement to continue. Therefore, he gave the command to return all land to the original owners every 50 years. Private property notice was not abolished. Private property is a part of biblical revelation. But everybody was supposed to have an approximately equal share in the means of producing wealth. What's the theological basis for that startling command? Yahweh's ownership of everything was the presupposition. The land cannot be sold permanently because Yahweh owns it. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity. Leviticus 10.23 says, For the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. God owns the land. For a time he permits his people to sojourn on his good earth and enjoy its beauty. But we're only stewards. Before and after the year of Jubilee every 50 years, land could be bought or sold. But the buyer actually purchased a specific number of harvests, not the land itself. And woe betide the person who tried to make a killing by demanding what the market would bear rather than a just price for the intervening harvests from the date of purchase to the next Jubilee. If the years are many, the text says, and you shall, if the years are many, you shall increase the price, and if the years are few, you shall diminish the price, for it is the number of the crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Yahweh is Lord, even of economics. There's no hint here of some sacred law of supply and demand, totally independent of biblical ethics and the lordship of Yahweh. The people of God submit to Yahweh, and he demands economic justice among his people. That this passage prescribes justice rather than haphazard handouts by wealthy philanthropists is extremely significant. The year of Jubilee envisages an institutionalized structure, a governmental mechanism, if you like, that affects everyone automatically. It's to be the poor person's right to receive back his inheritance at the time of Jubilee. Returning the land is not a charitable charitable courtesy that the wealthy might extend if they please. The Jubilee principle also provides for self-help and self-development. With his land returned, the poor person could earn his own living again. The biblical concept of Jubilee then underlines the importance of institutionalized mechanisms and structures that promote justice. Second, the sabbatical year. Every seven years, the land is to lie fallow. The purpose apparently is both ecological and humanitarian. Not planting any crops every seventh year certainly helps preserve the fertility of the soil. God, however, is especially concerned with the poor. The text says, For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. Hebrew slaves also received their freedom in the sabbatical year. Poverty sometimes forced Israelites to sell themselves as slaves to more prosperous neighbors, but this inequality... God decrees is not to be permanent. At the end of six years, the Hebrew slaves are to be set free, and masters are to share the proceeds of their joint labors with the departing brothers. 
the freed slave was supposed to be given the means that they needed to earn their own way. The sabbatical provision on loans was even more revolutionary. Every seven years, all debts were to be canceled. Yahweh even adds a footnote for those with a sharp eye for loopholes. It's sinful, he says, to refuse a loan to a poor man just because it's the sixth year and the money will be lost in 12 months. Take heed lest there be a base thought in your heart and you say the seventh year of the year of release is near and your eye be hostile to your poor brother and you give him nothing and he cry to the Lord against you and it be sin against you. Real guilt, you might say. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this the Lord your God will bless you. As in the case of the year of Jubilee, it is crucial to note that Scripture prescribes justice rather than mere charity. The sabbatical release of debts was an institutionalized mechanism for preventing an ever-growing gap between rich and poor. Deuteronomy 15 is both an idealistic statement of God's perfect demand and also a realistic reference to Israel's probable performance concerning debts. Verse 4 in this passage promises that there will be no poor in Israel if they obey all the commands that God gives. But God knew that they would not attain that standard. And therefore, in verse 11, he says that there will always be poor in Israel. But the conclusion is not noticed that one can therefore ignore the needy because hordes of paupers will always far exceed one's resources. That's the way it, you know, it's interpreted often today. It's precisely the opposite. The text goes on, For the poor will never cease out of the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in the land. Jesus knew, and Deuteronomy implies, that sinful persons and societies will always produce poor people. Rather than justifying negligence, however, God intends this insight to lead to renewed concern for the needy and to structural mechanisms for promoting justice. Let me briefly now think, talk about three objections. First, I'm proposing welfare handouts, and that's wrong both because it creates dependency and because the Bible says we should work for a living. I agree we're supposed to work for a living. But furthermore, I'm not proposing welfare handouts. I'm not proposing handouts. The, the present welfare system is certainly a mess. I'm eager for somebody to come up with a better proposal, and I'm glad to support a better proposal as soon as it comes along. Furthermore, I'm not proposing a specific mechanism here for governmental reduction of, of poverty. I'm simply saying that passages like Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 15 and the prophets demand that the civil government design programs to create socioeconomic structures that enable the poorer members of society to have the resources to earn a just living. Second, I'm a utopian who has forgotten about humanity's sinfulness. Not at all. I'm not saying we can end all poverty and create a secular utopia. Sin is therefore sinfully uh, sin, I'm sorry, and therefore sinfully created poverty will be with us until Jesus Christ returns. But that does not mean that we should give up trying just because we will not fully succeed. We don't abandon speed laws just because we know that sinful seminarians late for an eight o'clock class will break the law. Three, Israel was a theocracy and therefore the passages I cited don't apply today in our secular social order. Now certainly, it seems to me, the first application of biblical truth concerning just relationships among God's people apply to the church. As the new people of God, the church should be a new society incarnating the biblical principles on justice in society through its common life. Indeed, only as the church itself is a visible model of transformed socioeconomic relationships, only then will any appeal to governmental process 
possess integrity. Much recent Christian social action has been ineffective because Christian leaders call on the government to legislate what they couldn't persuade Christians to live. That way it's a farce. But I think that biblical principles also apply to secular societies in a second, secondary but still very important way. God did not arbitrarily dictate social norms for his people. The Creator revealed certain principles and social patterns because he knew what would lead to lasting peace and happiness for his creatures. Following biblical principles on justice in society is the only way to lasting peace and social harmony for all human societies. The biblical vision of the coming kingdom suggests the kind of social order God wills. And the church is supposed to be a living model now, imperfect to be sure, but still already a sign, of what the final kingdom of perfect justice and shalom will be like. That means that the closer any secular society comes to the biblical norms for just relationships among the people of God, the more peace, happiness, and harmony that society will enjoy. Now, obviously, sinful persons and sinful societies will never get beyond a dreadfully imperfect approximation. But social structures do exert a powerful influence on saint and sinner alike. Christians, therefore, should exercise a political influence to implement change in society at large. The fact that the biblical authors did not hesitate to apply revealed norms to persons and societies outside the people of God supports this point. Amos announced divine punishment against the surrounding nations for their evil and injustice. Isaiah denounced Assyria for its pride and injustice. The book of Daniel shows that God removed pagan kings like Nebuchadnezzar in the same way that he destroyed Israel's rulers when they failed to show mercy to the oppressed. God obliterated Sodom and Gomorrah no less than Israel and Judah because they neglected to aid the poor and feed the hungry. As the Lord of the universe, Yahweh applies the same standards of social justice toward the poor to all nations. I conclude by suggesting three reasons why we should resist the strong tide running today in our society to let personal charity handle the problems of the poor. I want to insist that some of the causes of poverty are structural. Structural causes that demand structural changes by the government. We must do it that way both because the Bible suggests that sort of thing, Leviticus 25, etc., and because structural change is often more effective, sometimes morally better, and three, less haphazard. Each of those points very briefly. Institutional change is often more effective. A good job retraining program is more valuable than a basket of groceries for the man who is technologically unemployed. Christians, you know, are sometimes like the people who try to control flies by using only fly swatters and sticky tape. Their job never gets done. But if the flies can be stopped from breeding, fly swatters are seldom necessary. Uh, take the case of the mosquitoes. If I move, may mix the metaphor just a bit. In the mid-1950s, Sri Lanka had two million malaria victims. Then the marshes were sprayed. In 63, there were only 17 malaria victims in the whole country. In fact, the death rate in Ceylon dropped as much in three years as it had in Western Europe in 300 years. Spraying Ceylon's marshes through a public policy approach to the government was more effective than either building hospitals or praying for the sick who had caught malaria from the mosquitoes in the marshes. The cup of cold water that we give in Christ's name is often more effective today if it's given to governmental structures. Second, institutional change is sometimes morally better. Personal charity and philanthropy still permit the rich donor 
to feel superior, and it makes the recipient feel inferior and dependent. Institutional changes, on the other hand, give the oppressed, the poor, rights and power. Belonging to a union is much better than being a very well-treated slave. It's better for the worker's self-respect, and it's better for the employer's attitude toward the worker. And three, personal charity is too arbitrary and haphazard. It depends on the whim and the feelings of the well-off. Many needy people fail to meet those who can help them. Proper institutional change, on the other hand, automatically benefits everyone. For, for these reasons, I would say Christians today need to be concerned with structural injustice and structural change with political activity uh, for the sake of the poor. The following illustration from Hitler's Germany shows how irrelevant personal charity can be in the face of structural evil. You yourself were not anti-Semitic and did not approve of minority group persecution. You had your Jewish neighbors into dinner, listened with them to Mozart, and played on the living room rug with their children. But if you did not protest against the public policy which made them wear armbands, defrauded them of property, and shipped them off to death, your little kindnesses were of no importance whatever. Your personal decency could never make up for public persecution that dehumanized your neighbors and indeed destroyed them. The point is clear. Personal goodness alone can never heal the ugly wounds inflicted by social injustice. The social structures themselves must be changed. I end with the story of an Indian bishop of the ancient Martoma Church, the church that St. Thomas founded in India in the first century. This good Indian bishop said that uh, there was once, and I use his language, an insane asylum. And they had a very good test for determining whether someone had uh, become well enough to leave the institution. What they would do was to take the person over to a water tap. And they would turn on the water, they would put a large tub underneath the tap, turn on the water, and fill it up. And then they would bring the person over and they would give the person a spoon. And they would say, please empty the tub. Now, if the person started to dip the water out spoonful by spoonful without turning the tap off, they knew the person was still crazy. say the person was stupid, maybe he wasn't crazy. It's a little hard to be sure. There we go. I think this is a momentous occasion, in a way, because it has been my contention for a number of years that the fundamental social issues within the Christian framework have been debated most effectively and most continually for the past 400 years between two groups, those who are the Puritans and those who are the Anabaptists. Mr. Sider may teach in a Baptist seminary. He is basically an Anabaptist, and I may belong to a Presbyterian church, but I am fundamentally a Puritan. And for four centuries... In the field of social ethics, these two positions, I believe, are the representative ones to which the other Christian groups ultimately must look to solve their handling of the problems 
of Christian social ethics. So, of course, as a participant, I regard this as kind of the squaring off of the, of the heavyweight championship bout. <laughs> the trouble is, of course, historically, most of the listeners have regarded it as the regional semifinals of the Golden Glove flyweight division. So I'm afraid by saying that I think that the fundamental issues are historically between these two camps does not really mean that in the past other Christians have recognized that, the, that this battle has been going on. I still contend, though, that as we enter a period of social disintegration and the judgment of God visibly on Western industrial society as well as on the third world, that we are going to see the debate sharpened more carefully, which is why I did want to come to this debate. Now, you have an outline of my presentation. I often regard outlines for debates in the same way that most students regard outlines for term papers. They are written to be deviated from in the last five minutes. With respect to Mr. Sider's three points, that God's people are to concern themselves with the poor, that God acts in history to bring down the rich, and that a biblical social order involves structural changes uh, which will then produce prosperity even within the realm of secular societies, I wish to affirm. The affirmation of the three points does not mean I agree with his conclusions regarding the nature of the social changes needed. But the three points are correct. And that is why, again, I reiterate the fact that the social ethics debate between the Puritans and the Anabaptists, that debate does not center on the argumentation regarding whether or not the structural changes are needed or some structural changes are needed. The debate centers upon the nature of the structural changes that are needed. The debate does not really concern whether or not God has a concern for the poor the question centers around the nature of the social and intellectual and personal changes which God has established in his Bible, in his revelation of himself, which will then lead to the social transformation, which does, in fact, eliminate poverty. The question, then, is the question of God's means for establishing a godly social order. What is the content of this outline which says that there is a relationship between a man's covenantal relationship with his God and his covenantal relationship with the society in which he operates. That's what the debate this evening is all about. And therefore, what I wish to assert is that I am not contending for the establishment of an organization called the Evangelicals for Social Inaction. That is not the contention. And to the extent that Mr. Sider and his movement has called attention to a weakness in American fundamentalism, that there has been a lack of concern with social ethics in American fundamentalism, I think that he has done the Christian world a service because this has been historically a defect in American fundamentalism. And I would call to your attention the recent book by uh, George Marsden, uh, published about two months ago on American fundamentalism. If it's in the library, I strongly recommend it. 
Uh, George, while he uh, was at the same seminary I attended, will tend to agree on many of his social policies, I suspect, with Mr. Sider, but his analysis of American fundamentalism is ingenious, and I do commend it to your attention. So what I would like to propose then, this evening, with respect at least to the outline, is the nature of the civil government's task if there is to be a social reconstruction which leads to the abolition of poverty or at least the drastic reduction of poverty. Now, I believe unquestionably that the Old Testament provides the outline. We have been given an outline for reconstruction. We have been handed our marching papers as individuals, as members of association, uh, as members of a body politic. And to the extent that we turn our back on those marching orders, we are, in effect, in rebellion against God. But what I want to call attention in my speech is that the nature of the change that is required is not to advance further into the Canaanitic policies of the day, but to turn back, back to a social order which is more self-consciously geared to the establishment of Christian institutions in every sphere of human life. That the Christian is called to serve as salt. Now, salt had two functions, as you well know in the Old Testament. The one function we're all familiar with. It flavors food. It makes food better. But salt had another function, and that was destruction. And when in the ancient world there was a victory by one city over another, the worst thing that could be done by the victor to that city was to salt it over. And that, of course, as you know from the Punic Wars, is what was done by Rome to the Carthaginian state. And we must understand something. We are told specifically that the salt was on the altar and was sprinkled on the altar. That was not to make the meat savory. That was a testimony to the coming judgment. And we're told in Mark that he who does not side with Jesus Christ becomes a salted offering forever. Hell is described as a salted offering. So we have a twofold program when we are told we must serve as salt. We are to act as a saver for our institutions. We are to make them more palatable, more acceptable, better, more flavorful. But simultaneously, as godly men, we are to spread salt across the face of any civilization that does not bring itself to the foot of the cross and to the law of God. We are not simply here to flavor the world as such. We are here to pour salt across the face of a civilization. Third world, first world, second world, any world but the world of the Scriptures. And if we do our work well, we are going to substitute. And as, as we replace systematically every institution with a biblical social order, we are going to replace the prevailing civil order. That's our goal. I believe we're going to do it. I'm optimistic about the future. We are salt in every sense of the world, in every sense of the word. Now, with respect to what is the function of civil government, 
The civil government unquestionably is geared to justice. Now, I think the representative passage, which Mr. Sider predictably would know that I would go to, is Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 15. Ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. It is this verse which is the foundation of the both the New Testament and the Old Testament judgment regarding the nature of God. That is, that God is not a respecter of persons. Judgment is given irrespective of the wealth or poverty of the individual. Now, James repeats this when he tells you how you're to line up people in a Christian church. You don't give a special place for the rich, but, though he doesn't say it, by adhering to this judgment, you don't give a special place for the needy. Judgment is impartial with respect to a man's social origins. It is certainly impartial with respect to his present economic situation. <coughs> you will forgive me. I've been suffering with a cold for several days, and I have a certain cough problem. I hope it does not overcome me, but it is a problem, so I'm having a little trouble with my voice. Now, I think the archetype of what God has provided for us comes in the person of two individuals. I've not put this into the outline that I've provided for you, but I think the archetype that we look at to discover what principles we have for poverty and riches, we find in Abraham and Lot. Now, the two of them initially were wealthy. And if you remember, the reason that a division in the land had to take place was because the cattle and the people in both camps were beginning to rub against each other and get into conflicts. So they had to divide the very large quantity of capital in the form of animals that each man held. And so Abraham gave Lot a choice. He could go to the harder land, or he could go to what visibly was the better land. And we know what he, cho what he chose. He chose Sodom, which at that time, prior to the judgment of God, was a lush place, very productive agriculturally. But remember what he did. He sided with the unrighteous, rebels against God, sodomites, perverts, wicked men to the core. But he looked to the external blessings, that is, he was going to get an immediate capital increase because he got the better land. And so he sided with the, the rebels. And Abraham took the harder property. And what was the result? By establishing the foundation of his future, of his heirs, of his kingdom, Lot bet on geography rather than character. He bet on the visible wealth of Sodom rather than the law of God. And Abraham did the opposite. And we know what the result was. Lot wound up with nothing in the hills, in drunken stupor, seducing two daughters, and was the father of probably the two most wicked nations in the Old Testament, Ammon and Moab, both of which were permanently prohibited from getting into the congregation of Israel. 
That's what we look at. It is character and law that is the foundation of wealth, not geography, not present capital. Lot had the capital when he went into Sodom, not Abraham. Lot had the wealth visible, visibly. And if there had been property taxes in those days, Lot would have paid the higher taxes. But he bet on visible capital in a present circumstance rather than betting on character and the law of God based over the long-term appreciation of capital. He wound up with nothing. Abraham took everything. Abraham had wealth. He had gold. He had silver. He had cattle. And Lot wound up with nothing. That is the premise in which I would like to present my debate this evening. Now, with respect to the civil government, I have made my case with what I regard as the toughest case in the Scriptures. And that is the case of the quarantine on leprosy, or at least on whatever group of diseases described there, which we normally, which the Scriptures then referred to as leprosy, in which a righteous man who was found a leper was quarantined. First, personally, he was examined by the priest very carefully. And if the disease stayed through the full seven days, he was isolated from the community. He was told in any contact in the future with other Hebrews that he would have to shout unclean, unclean to warn them of his affliction and that he would have to go outside the gates of the city, cut off from the congregation. If they found it in his clothing that was at home, they burned the clothing. Please turn over the cassette at this point. And if after a careful series of tests, the disease was found in the stones of the house, the stones were thrown down in the pits outside the city. And the family was left destitute. The breadwinner was cut off. The clothing of the man was cut off and burned if it was sick, and ultimately they threatened the destruction of the individual's house, and his family was evicted. And what was the civil government's role in helping the victim? Nothing. The civil government was acting to preserve the health of the society. This was not a laissez-faire society. I certainly am not a defender of a laissez-faire ethic. There was a quarantine. It rested very heavily upon the back of the man who was afflicted. This is the worst case scenario. There was no one, at least a righteous person in Israel, who was in lower status, lower class, or worse condition than the leper. No one. He was the bottom. There was no one in Israel, probably even including the slaves, who would swap places with the leper if he had the opportunity. Not to get his freedom, not to get anything. He was the bottom of the heap. He fell through no sin of his own. There's nothing in the Scriptures to indicate that the leper was cursed because of his own sinfulness. It could cut down a righteous man without warning. Now, admittedly, there were a couple of cases where, yes, it was done as a judgment. On, on Isaiah, uh, yes, and it was brought again on, on Miriam briefly. But still in all, there's no testimony in here that's any indication that he fell through a sin of his own. Who bore the cost? He did, and his family. It was the protection of the other citizens that the state was operating. Now, this doesn't mean charity was not to be given. 
They could beg. They could be brought benefits. I think a righteous man would have risked the disease to bring him the benefits, to bring food or clothing or whatever. That's one of the things we have to risk as godly men and women, but not the state. The state was not considered sufficiently reliable to allow them to benefit the person who had been cut down by the state's own policies because the state is not to be trusted in most of these matters. Now, the poor tithe was a requirement and should be a requirement. If Christian men and women had respected the tithe for the past 2,000 years, we would own the earth. That's what the scriptures tell us. My father-in-law found a passage in a book by Lucas Vischer on the tithe, a very interesting passage out of the 5th century. We don't know who wrote it. It was a fragment. Contemporary of Augustine. You know what it said? Fascinating thing. It said, If we do not honor the tithe and pay our tithe to God, we shall pay our tithe to the emperor. Amen. It is because of the defection of Christians in civilization not to own up to their personal responsibilities in every sphere of life that has led to a satanic substitution of coercive power run by the secularists for the secularists in an attempt to replace the Church of Jesus Christ as a responsible and effective civil organization. Now, you may think I don't trust government policies. You might be correct, I will admit. Now, I want to read you something. This is one of my favorite footnotes that I've ever found. This may be my one contribution to the evening, but this one is juicy. You want to know how you're going to judge whether or not a civil program that the civil magistrate is coercively financing with your taxes, how are you going to know if it works? They're going to tell you? They're going to give you an option? Let me tell you my favorite official analysis of any government program. This appears in a book by John D. Montgomery called The Politics of Foreign Aid, American Experience in Southeast Asia. It was published in 1963, published for the Council on Foreign Relations, one of the most prestigious of all the think tanks in Washington, published under Frederick A. Prager's imprimatur, a prestigious publisher. Now, I want you to listen to the con job that the liberal man who wrote this thing gave to us. This is what you're going to get. Quote, page 44. 1963, my friends, in spite of numerous criticisms, the Vietnam program has been cited both by official and by unofficial sources as a model of what American aid can achieve. Amen. That's the model. Imperialism domestically to expand the state's control over the population within, the, within this country inevitably, systematically leads to imperialism internationally. And the rise of imperialism in Britain in the latter part of the 19th century came at exactly the same time that they abandoned the free market social order. And the rise of imperialism in this country with the coming of the Spanish-American War and the rise of Teddy Roosevelt and the progressives came at exactly the same time when they began to strangle the free market order. It's a part and parcel of the same policy. Where does our foreign aid, <coughs> foreign aid go? 
It goes to support foreign governments, invariably secular, invariably humanistic, and invariably expanding their own power on top of their own domestic populations. Mr. Sider is concerned, undoubtedly, as we all are, with the problems of the tyrannies of Latin America, of Southeast Asia, and of Africa. And they are tyrannies. And where do you think our money goes? To help the poor in the fields? Or to build up the large urban complexes 40 stories high, which are built by American contractors or German contractors according to the styles suited to large urban congested areas in the Western world. They want to imitate the worst of our systems, and we finance it. We finance it with money that is extracted by compulsion out of the pockets of Christians, most of which are middle class or lower in this country. We are not the rich of this country normally. Never have been, or at least not in the past hundred years. The state cannot be trusted in most cases, as a positive force. It is there to protect property. It is there to protect us against uh, disease in the case of the quarantine. It is there to do minimal local charity. And yet even here, in the case of local charity in the gates of the city, where perhaps a third of the tithe to a half of the tithe, depending on which way you interpret the nature of the poor tithe, and it's a tough question, a very rigorous, tough question. And if any of you have any suggestions on it or term papers on it, send it to me because I'm struggling with it personally. But the poor tithe was to be used for public celebration. But where do we have it today? Where do we have anything comparable to the godly celebration of the poor tithe? The only thing I think even comparable to it that we have is on either Christmas night or on Thanksgiving in the rescue missions around the country. We do have that. It's not much. It's something. It's surely better than nothing. But it's about the only thing communally that we have. Where is our poor tithe? Where do we invite in the people of the community to celebrate the gifts of God? And I mean celebrate, joyfully, sing and dance. Protestants don't dance, I know. But still, why don't we? Nevertheless, don't misunderstand the nature of it. The massive program of redistribution from our pockets to the bureaucrats that we have today is not the poor tithe. Now, let me give you my favorite example. This was given to me by a friend of mine named Walter Williams, who's professor of economics down at Temple, or at least he was. I think maybe he's at George Mason now, but he was at Temple at the time. He's a pretty smart guy, a pretty cagey operator. He used to be a Black Panther. He's about six feet four, and I always call him Sir. He did a study of the oldest, most traditional, most disastrous social welfare program in the United States, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the oldest standing one we've got. It's where we put whole societies on the dole and destroyed them, categorically destroyed them, totally dependent for over a hundred years on us. Here are the statistics as of 76. Now, I'm sure they're worse now because the inflation rates are high. The numbers will be different. This is in 76. Walter looked at the number of Indian families that were on the reservations who could receive the benefits. 
He then looked at the total budget of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and he discovered that if you took the budget of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, had a computer send a check out to each of the families eligible for the support, the check in 1976 would have totaled $30,000 a family a year. You think they're getting $30,000 a year? Now, he said what you could do would be to abolish the Bureau of Indian Affairs, cut the budget by 50%, have the computer mail out $15,000 per family per year, per year, and it would have at least doubled and probably tripled the actual aid received by the Indians. He said it's a great idea, but we're having problems, real problems, with one special interest group that is opposing this the Bureau of Indian Affairs. There's a great cartoon that I always liked. It's a, it's a classic. It was, in, it was in The Wizard of Id. I don't know if you read The Wizard of Id. It's a pretty hip cartoon. And Rodney, the kind of cowardly knight, and the king are riding along in a coach. And out of the woods springs that most dastardly character in the most feared character in the cartoon strip, Robin Hood. And Robin consults him and says, give me your gold. And the king, who doesn't want to give it up, understandably, says, why should I give you my gold? And he said, because I rob from the rich and I give to the poor minus 20% for handling. And so the king says, all right, but if I give you my gold and you give the gold to the poor and they become rich, what will you do? And he says, I'll rob them, give it back to the poor, minus 20% for handling. And both Rodney and the king handed over to the man. You can't argue against that one. And that's the reality. It is the state. It is the expansion of the Moloch state, which is now extracting in terms of national income, 42% of national income of this country now. And the bulk of it goes for social welfare redistribution. It does not go to military. A good chunk goes to military. They've proven themselves to be good bureaucrats too. We're facing nuclear war in the next 36 months and we may lose it. They've proven themselves to be equally good federal bureaucrats. They're doing just as good a job on their end of the street as the welfare people are doing on their end of the street. In both cases, disastrous. Now, with this as kind of my background of how I think about government operations, I get back to the original point. Yes, there is a tithe. I believe it should be mandatory, legally mandatory. The state should prescribe it. It is God's property. The state should not say where it's going to go. The state can have a whole series of institutions, as it does right now, the ones that are entitled to tax deductions, charitable organizations. And the state should undoubtedly get its hands out of the operations, except to make certain the money's not being ripped off, where criminal charges can be brought. It should do nothing else. It should require the tithe. It is God's property. And Malachi 3 is very clear on that. I don't think there's any problem with that. It's God's property. But, if you look in the Old Testament at what was the most hideous, tyrannical bureaucracy, 
that we have any record of, it was Egypt. The longest lived bureaucracy, as far as I know, in the history of man. And Joseph came in and he put them into slavery, didn't he? It was the judgment of God. And he put all of Egypt under slavery in bondage to the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh then extracted, on a permanent basis, 20% of everything produced in that society. The only groups not put under that tyranny were the priests of Egypt and the family of Jacob. Everyone else went into slavery where they belonged because they were perverse and wicked and their own theology said that their king was divine and so God once again showed them what happens if you hold bad theology. He's going to put you under exactly that God that you profess belief in. That's what God does. That's what he did in the land of Canaan. What is the book of Judges about? Except that. Isn't that the recurring story of the book of Judges? You like Canaanitic gods? Let me show you Canaanitic gods for about 40 years. Let me give you a taste of Canaanitic social justice. Let me give you Canaanitic culture firsthand. And into slavery they went. And then, of course, they prayed to be released. But every time they went back to the God. It is a theological matter. You will be put into bondage of the God that you worship. You'd better worship the God of the Scriptures. It's just as clear as that. So we put them under bondage in Egypt. You remember the tax rate, 20%. Do you realize that there is no Western industrial state today that would not have to reduce its taxes 50% to put its people back into the bondage of Egypt? And Americans don't know the difference. We're paying 30, 40, 50 percent to the state, and we don't know the difference. We're living in something two and a half times or at least twice as bad as Egypt, and we think it's freedom. And it's because we have lost our faith. We don't take the scriptures seriously anymore. I believe it is the politics of envy. I don't believe most socialists. Most redistributionists who have studied it really believe that redistribution is going to benefit the poor anymore. I'm not saying that to Mr. Sider. He does. I don't believe most of them believe it anymore. The reason is because if you took all the wealth of the West and distributed per capita across the face of the earth, you would have about a one or two year increase of people's income, briefly, if they knew how to run the machines, and then you'd be back in poverty because there are not enough rich people. You can't do it. But envy is different. Envy is the thing that says not that... It's not covetousness. I don't think it's covetousness. Covetousness is where you say, he's got it, I'd like it, I'll take it, I'll use it. That's a bad and it's an evil tendency, but it's not the worst one. Envy is worse. Envy is, the, is that evil part of the heart that says, he's got it, I don't have it, I know I'll never have it, but I don't want him to have it. I'll break it. I'll burn it. I'll destroy it. I'll wipe it out. It's better that he doesn't have it, even though I know I can't get it. And I, that is what I think is the motivating political force in the Western world today. And in fact, it's one of our great exports. Most of the third world believes it too. Unfortunate export policy. It is the policy that says, I'd rather tear down if I can't have it. Now, I'll tell you the origin of it 
the fellow's name is Satan, who didn't believe he'd get the throne of God, who didn't believe he'd lead heaven. He, wasn't, he, he was not stupid or crazy. He was just rebellious. But he said, I'll thumb my nose at God and I'll tear down the creation of God and I'll put a curse on God's own image. If I can destroy it, I'm better off, even though I know I'll never be able to be God and participate as God. That's envy. Satanic to the core. It's envy. Where a politics is based on it, it is ultimately destructive. Now, the reason, one of the fundamental reasons of the West's prosperity for the last how many years? 500, 600? Is that Christian preaching preached against envy for a millennium. Men preached against covetousness. They preached against envy. They preached against tearing down the rich just because he was rich. And when men knew they could get rich and keep it, they would begin to work to get it. And that's the foundation of most of the Protestant West. that history repeats itself. I don't believe that history is cyclical. It doesn't repeat itself. I'm just saying that comparable sins result in comparable judgments. And historically, if we look at Western history, what do we find? Where are the nations that have stamped out pestilence, stamped out famine, stamped out plague? Where are they? They're universally Protestant. Now, isn't that random? Isn't that amazing? Boy, aren't Protestants smart. They always move to the countries that don't have famine, pestilence, and plague. They're really cagey. You, they, they, they look around the world, show me a country that doesn't have it, and I'll go there. They all wind up there. You don't have famine and pestilence and plague in Protestant countries. Why not? Well, you know why not. Because more than any other group on the face of the earth, it is Protestantism for all its weaknesses, for all its rebellion, for all its unwillingness to conform to the covenants of God. The Protestant countries have been blessed. Catholic countries do have the problems, but not to the extent that pagan nations have them. God blesses them comparably. The only case that you have in the industrial West, well, I should say the West, in the past 200 years of famine, you only have one case, and that's Ireland. And the Irish were not industrialized. By the way, they were oppressed. And it's a great evil what happened to them. And boy, the British are paid for it the last 100 years. They did not have the plagues in Ireland, but they did get the famine because they didn't look at the warning that came in the early 1840s when the potato crops began to fail and they wouldn't believe that the judgment was coming. They didn't believe it. And then in 1845, it hit them and it destroyed probably millions of them. And they came here. They came to Boston. And they don't remember their heritage, I suspect, because they become the best Protestants in America, darn near. If you look at what the Catholics have done in this country, they make excellent Protestants. American Catholics are some of the best Protestants in the world in their basic attitudes. They're also, by the way, if you've looked at what's happened to per capita income, the wasps are way down now. Do you know that in terms of American income? The wasps are down. The white Anglo-Saxon Protestants are down. Jews are above them. Poles are above them. That's the ultimate Polish joke. The Poles literally 
are way above, not way above, but you know, reasonably above the WASP average income. If you want to check the statistics, take a look at the book by Thomas Sowell, S-O-W-E-L-L, Race and Economics. Sowell is an ex-Marxist. I like to read his stuff. I used to have to fight him. Now I don't have to do it anymore. He's a very sharp guy. He's got the statistics. It's amazing what's happened to the racial distribution of income in this country in the past 15 or 20 years. Wasps are getting towards the bottom now. Now the state, as it expands, cuts off the sources of charity, investment, and growth. I'm going to throw a little economics at you. Don't panic. This is so simple, a Harvard economist will be able to understand this. It's a grim statistic, and it's true, and you can see it if you want to. I'm going to give you a, an example. Assume you have $50,000 of capital to invest, which means if you have that much capital, you're fairly wealthy. In Britain, at least until Thatcher came in, but for years in Britain, the, and the top income tax rate on what is called, quote, unearned income, unquote, which is, in other words, is interest income, investment income, dividend income, royalty income, etc. The top tax rate in Britain was 98%. By the way, you can't tithe in Britain. You don't get a tax deduction for your tithe in Britain. And at the top level, it's impossible to give your 10%, or as I do, the 15% away, because you don't have it. They take it. Now let me give you an example of what happened. You got 50 grand. Okay, now you, got a, you, th you think you got a big investment possibility. You can get 10% on your money. Now that's a pretty good rate of return. That's the average rate of return in most industrial countries. 10% is average. Almost nobody makes more than 10% on his money. And adjusted for inflation, of course, he doesn't make 2% anymore. The average investment gets about 10% on invested capital. So you get five grand a year, right? And how much does the state get? 4,900 bucks. And you get 100. Whoopee. You've risked 50 grand in what may be a belly up operation. And that's a painful thing when it happens. You may get 10% back, you hope. You take the chance, the state gets 4900 bucks. you get 100 Now, let me throw another one at you. A Rolls-Royce stripped-down model costs fifty grand. You take the $50,000 and you buy a Rolls-Royce. What is the out-of-pocket expense for the annual operation of a Rolls-Royce, not counting maintenance and fuel? A hundred bucks. Right? You could invest it and get five grand, and the state takes 4,900. Or you buy your Rolls-Royce, the state takes nothing, and you get the use of a Rolls-Royce for a year. Total money out of your pocket, total forfeited income, eight bucks a month. What would you like if you were a Briton with 50,000 bucks? You know what you'd like. You know why Rolls Royces are all over the streets of Britain? They are. That's why. 
And you look at Britain, you say, boy, they must be doing great. Man, look at all these Rolls Royces. I'll tell you what Britain is doing. Britain is decapitalizing its future on a pace, on a scale, unprecedented in Western history. Britain is throwing in the towel. They don't invest it to create jobs. They don't invest it in the tithe because they can't because the state rips it off. They put it into Rolls Royces. And you know what happens to the Rolls Royces? They appreciate about 15% per annum. That's what happens to them. And Americans are almost as bad. You can do it in this country at the 70% tax bracket. You can do it for about a thousand bucks out of your pocket, or maybe two thousand, something like that. It's not much, but maybe fifteen hundred bucks. That's what it costs me—a hundred bucks a month if I'm in that top bracket and I'm getting taxed at seventy cents on the dollar. The politics of envy. Nobody believes in Britain the state's going to get 98%. No British official believes that. They're there to decapitalize the future. It is secular humanism revolting against the sons of the revolution. That's what it is. They're decapitalizing Britain. And the rich drive around in the Rolls Royces. And when they finally die out, I don't mean the rich, I mean the Rolls Royces, when they're finally broken and pieces of junk, and admittedly it takes longer for Rolls Royce to wind up like that, where's Britain's capital? It's in the rotting in the, in the used car lots of Britain. That's where it is. Now, the Jubilee principle was a good principle. It didn't make anybody rich. Anybody who was faithful to the law of God got poor real fast under the Jubilee. That was its function. The Jubilee's function was to get you poor. Now, let me say it again. The Jubilee's function was to take your capital and strip it from you. That was its function. It's a good function, given what was happening in Israel. Let's do a little quick homework. I've got it here now. Two million plus people came into the land of Israel under Moses. They were told that if they followed the covenantal law of God, there would be no more miscarriages in the land, either of animals or people. All the plagues of Egypt would be removed from them, and if they adhered to the law regarding honoring of father and mother, they would live longer. Now, you talk about a population explosion, friends. They'd gone in 215 years, in my opinion, that was the time they were in the land, in the land of Egypt. They'd gone from a handful of families to two and a half million. And that was with miscarriages. And now God says you're not going to get any more if you follow my law. Do you realize what would have happened to the population of Israel if they had conformed to the law of God? Within three centuries, they would have owned the earth. And you say, oh, no, no, wait, that's crazy. Four billion people in the world today, right? Four billion people? What if there's 1% population growth for 1,000 years? How many people will be on the earth at the end of 1,000 years if we have a minimal 1% increase? Answer, 83 trillion. God is telling us and has told us since the time of Adam and Eve, take the earth, multiply, subdue it, bring glory out of it to me, and take it fast. He doesn't like sin, you know. He doesn't like sin. He doesn't like us to sit around and not having economic growth in large families. Makes him mad. We're not dominion-oriented. We're not future-oriented. The Israelis, with that kind of rate of growth, would have conquered the earth in three centuries, filled it to the brim. 
Now, what was the Jubilee there to do? A faithful, godly family where each generation had eight, nine kids and no miscarriages, and they all lived to 75 or 80, what happens, do you think, to the size of the plots per person within a century? Half an acre? Uh-uh. Tenth of an acre? Thirty feet square? That's right. Now, brother, when you get your big 30-square-foot or 30-foot-square plot back every 50 years, you don't sit around for the next 49 waiting to get another one that's 8 inches square at the end of that generation. What's that jubilee there to tell you? The jubilee is there to say, brother, if you stay in this land, sitting on your duffs, not being dominion-oriented, not multiplying, not having economic growth, okay, you can, you'll get your two, three acres back. But if you're faithful to me, brother, it ain't worth a cent. You don't even worry about it, unless it's got oil on it. Sure, a little oil or gold on it. You pay some attention. <laughs> I live in Texas. There are, there's about a 30-square-foot area in our town I'd love to get, and I would pay attention to that. But the rest of the town, you wouldn't worry 30 square feet. That's what you're going to get. The Jubilee principle was there to tell them, I want you to expand across the face of the earth. I want you to buy it up. And that's what it would be today. Now, of course, it doesn't apply today for two reasons. One, the Levitical priests were not under it, and we are in the priesthood, according to Peter. Secondly, the walled city it didn't apply to, and the New Jerusalem, the Church of God, is described in the New Testament as the walled city. And the Jubilee was canceled when Christ announced that he was the fulfillment. And the earth was transferred back to Jesus Christ. And we are his heirs, the adopted sons, and we're to buy back the earth by being dominion-oriented and productive. Now, with respect to the six-year debt limitation, let me impress upon you, brothers and sisters, in the name of God, believe it. Believe it. And build the rest of your life in terms of it. Now, the New Testament's tougher. The New Testament says, Owe no man anything save to love one another. Romans 13.8 But for emergencies, because we're weak and because I'm weak, God says, All right, six-year debt, you can do it. But I don't like it. It stinks, but you can do it. Don't you go out and debt yourself for 30 years to buy that three-bedroom duplex. If you can't pay it off in six years, don't you buy it. You rent. And that's what I do. And I rented, boy, in my marriage for a long time. And until I had sufficient income to pay my debts off in a six-year period, I would not indebt myself. And I beg you, don't you do it either. We are limited by debt. We're not to indebt ourselves. We become slaves that way. By the way, my personal debt year is July of 82. Every single debt I've got has got to be cleared by then. And all my investments now are geared to that. And you should loan money to a guy, even if he's been in debt six years. You know what? American law acknowledges it, doesn't it? How often are you allowed to declare bankruptcy? Isn't it interesting? Every seventh year. We built this country on a biblical law structure, and the secularists are stealing it away from us. So what I'm saying is this. God doesn't want you rich. He doesn't want us poor. He wants the world rich, but He wants the world faithful. And He does say, Brother... If you're going to thumb your nose at me like Satan thumbed his nose at me, you're going to get poor. And societies that conform themselves to anti-biblical law structures get poor. And they're going to stay poor. And those societies like Japan 
and a few other non-Christian societies which have said, we'll adopt Western Protestant ways and we'll do it better than the Protestants, and they have. They're going to get rich, and they have. We want to eliminate poverty, but the answer is not a welfare state. The answer is not more Bureau of Indian Affairs. The answer is the tithe. The answer is dominion. The answer is godly children who are geared to work and self-discipline and future orientation. The, guy, the, the way to it is productivity and honesty and hard work. There is no other way. I believe in helping the poor. I don't believe in putting the poor under bondage to the Moloch state where they got to toe the mark to get their check. they got to shuffle in and say, Yes, sir. Yes, sir. No, I'm not living with anybody else. No, I'm not. No, I haven't made the money, etc., etc. And then they get their check. And then they shuffle on out. We don't create a Moloch state that takes twice the income out of us that Egypt took and call it a godly social order. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the full Gary North collection, now available on Canon+. Plus.